Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. For this episode, I sat down with Alan Woods, the co-founder and executive director of Mortar, a Cincinnati-based accelerator that's working to help historically marginalized entrepreneurs get the resources they need to start and run successful businesses. Whereas most accelerators pull from as large a pool of entrepreneurs as possible, Mortar has taken the exact opposite approach, starting with one specific community in Cincinnati over the Rhine and designing a curriculum that is as relevant and culturally competent as possible for that specific community. Now, six years into operation, Mortar's model is catching on around the country. They have begun partnering with local organizations around the Midwest to design entrepreneurial training and mentorship programs that work and benefit the communities for which they're intended. During our conversation, we talk about the evolution of Mortar, Alan's own entrepreneurial journey, and what's next for the organization. Let's jump into the conversation. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You work with small businesses in a, a community that's primarily African-American, two of the, uh, the demographics that have been hit hardest by the current pandemic. So I just wanted to start by saying that, that I appreciate the work that you do, and I appreciate you, you taking the time to, to sit down with me. I imagine that the last month or two has been a, a trying time for you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. And yeah, this this last month has been completely uh, a new configuration for us. I mean, like uh, we've been in operation for six years and by far, like a lot of other uh, small businesses, this month has been something that you couldn't plan for and something that's been entirely different than the norm for us. So it's it's definitely been a new experience. Well, just to, to back up, what, what is it that, that you do? You founded a company six years ago, as you mentioned, called Mortar. What, what do you do at Mortar? Yeah, so I am one of the co-founders and executive director at Mortar. And what we did is three years ago, me, Derek Brazil, and William Thomas, we were exploring Cincinnati and, and really just kind of looking at what the atmosphere looked like from the perspective of entrepreneurship and you know, looking at a specific neighborhood called Over the Rhine, there was a lot happening, a lot of transition, a lot of growth, a lot of new businesses, a lot of uh, new restaurants and things of that nature. But what we were noticing is that the community, though very diverse, when you got inside the businesses, that diversity completely vanished. And the majority of those new businesses were not operated by people of color. The neighborhood traditionally, however, was one that was about 90% African-American at one point, uh, roughly about 15, 20 years ago, and now is has shifted significantly to being about 60% African-American. It is uh, socioeconomic diversity there as well, where a couple of years ago, the Urban League said that it had kind of the highest level of income disparity in the nation of any neighborhood. So wow. like you had the highest highs and the lowest lows. So you would have you know, corporate executives from Procter & Gamble, uh, Macy's, and some of the other Fortune 500 companies that are operating here in Cincinnati, you would have them living in condos on one side of the street. And then literally across the street, you would have Section 8 housing for low to moderate income families. And so it just was seeing, you know, these really uh, different points of 
income levels. And, and, and so, you know, in seeing that and how it has affected the ability for people to create their own businesses, we created Mortar so that we could give people an opportunity to say, hey, you know, I have this gift, talent or ability that I want to figure out how to monetize. And I want to be a part of the growth and development of this community that I've been in for my whole life or, or however long. And I just want to be a part of those shifts and changes. And, you know, how can I be a part of that? So what is it specifically that, that you do with these these entrepreneurs in, in Cincinnati? Yeah. Uh, so we have an 18 week uh, accelerator that we call the Mortar Entrepreneurship Academy. When we first started six years ago, we were doing a nine-week academy. We were using a curriculum that we licensed from another company. Um, and over the course of the last six years, we were just noticing how much we had to change to fit the cultural context of the participants who were coming through our program. And then so ultimately, about two and a half years ago, we were like, you know, it, it's we're hacking the curriculum so much it just makes sense for us to create our own. Um, and so we wrote our own curriculum. It's called the master's curriculum, which it has a musical context. A lot of it thinks about, you know, when you're in the music industry and you own your master's, that is what really gives you longevity and the ability to build a legacy and to you know, own your master's means that you are financially sound and you're going to be in a place later where you can control that. And there's so many times in, you know, the history of this country where Black people have not been in control of their legacies or in control of ownership. You know, we've gone from being owned to now having an opportunity to be owners. And so we, we wrote that curriculum for our 15-week academy. And so that gives us the ability to continue to, to push this agenda forward and to help people who are in these communities learn how to take those hobbies and, and convert them into uh, legitimate businesses that uh, they're able to monetize. What do you mean by incorporating music into yeah. the curriculum? Oh man, it's everywhere. Uh, so a lot, <laughs> of, a lot of what we do as an organization, we have a, a deep tie to uh, music and, and hip hop. And I mean, when you think of any time that is important in your life, nine times out of 10, there's some musical component to it. I mean, like think about when you gather with your friends or you know, a, a get together at your house, there's going to be music. Think about when you have a family reunion, you know, or when you have a cookout or when you get married or, you know, there's all of these times in our lives that there is a musical accompaniment to it. And so what we've done is kind of encourage the connection of music to the work that we do and that process. Uh, and so building music into that you know, helps us to be able to say there's song lyrics in our curriculum. There are, you know, this connection to, for example, like Jay-Z and talking about how he has converted his musical capabilities into developing a larger enterprise and becoming an entrepreneur, really looking at it in a different way. And I mean, even speaking of Jay-Z, I mean, like if you think about, you know, a lot of the people in our neighborhoods who have felt as if they were pushed into living a different lifestyle. I mean, Jay-Z started out, you know, as a drug dealer, period. It's factual. And he has, you know, switched that hustle to doing something else that is legal and legitimate. And we get a lot of participants in our program who have had uh, interactions with the law or they have been to prison and they're trying to figure out how do I start this next level of my life in a way that is legal and 
can't support my family. Uh, and so we're encouraging people to not forget the hustle, you know, but to convert it into something that's legal. Do, you know, use that same enterprising spirit that you had to do something else and take that and convert it into something that actually builds up your community instead of tearing it down. Besides incorporating music, how else have you adapted the the curriculum to suit the the specific businesses that you're working with? You know, it's it's got a complete cultural competency. That is something that as we were on our journey of trying to find a curriculum that that worked well for our participants, that was one of the things that really was amiss in most of the areas that we were looking. It was you know, an inability to speak to the Black experience, to come from a perspective of youth and, you know, this vibrancy and this energy that a lot of our participants have. None of the the curriculum that we looked at really talked about like being single parents or navigating the additional journeys that come with systemic racism or things like that. You know, you get a lot of courses like this that talk about, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, finding uh, funding by asking your friends and family. And, you know, that all sounds great until you add into the equation that people who have lived in poverty for the majority of their lives don't have friends and family who probably don't live in the same poverty that they live in. And so it's really difficult for you to ask your friends and family to support your dream when they don't have the, the financial means to support their own dreams. And so, you know, in that way, we have really built in the experience that, you know, people of color and immigrants have had in this country to make sure that there is that cultural competency and uh, really connected to some of the additional challenges and strains that Black people have had specifically. I mean, when you think, you know, everything about being Black has been politicized. I mean, when you think that there, it was, it was against the law for a person who was black to purchase a home, and it wasn't that long ago. And when you think that if you can't purchase a home, that you know, real estate is one of the ways that many people in this country have built wealth. And if you are unable to build wealth from purchasing a home, then that means that you can't pull from the equity in your home to start a business. And if you can't pull from the equity in your home to start a business, chances are that you're going to be less likely to be able to start that business with the right amount of capital that you need to move forward. Um, and so we, we, we tackle some of those things. We, we introduce them as additional challenges, but not as excuses, but as methods of uh, understanding what are some of the other obstacles that you're going to have to overcome, because now we can buy our own homes, you know, and we can we can figure out how to get our finances in a place where we can buy our own homes now and make those adjustments. Yeah, I believe real estate and entrepreneurship are, are the two primary drivers of, of wealth and two areas that, as you mentioned, where Black communities have been excluded. Absolutely. But besides lack of access to, to capital, you mentioned the friends and family mm-hmm. capital. What, what are some of the other resource constraints that your community is facing? Um, I would say historically, I mean, the, the network, you know, like I mentioned, you know, when we talk about friends and family, yes, we talk about like the capital, but then we also, we have to talk about connections, you know, like if, if we're all coming from the same context and we all have the same experience and we've been built into a society that wants you to do skilled labor, the chances are you don't have 
someone who has a different context who can be a mentor to guide you to a different place. If you come from a community that has seen a lot of additional obstacles and challenges, and ultimately when people make it beyond those those obstacles and challenges, the notion is, okay, you've made it, now it's time for you to get out and go to the suburbs or, or you know, have this different lifestyle. And then you create this separation, you know, where, you know, we may come from the same place, but the notion is that once you make it, you should move out. And so when you move, you're also taking your network with you. You take your experience of challenges that you've overcome, you take that with you and you move it to a whole different area. And then now you are no longer in a place to be a mentor to people who are still in the positions that you came from. So that's an additional challenge. So like having people who have experiences that you can learn from and who are also willing to share, because that's honestly been one of the challenges as well, is finding people who have made it, who are also willing to share what they've learned in the process. You know, there, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who honestly once they've made it, they they have these moments of kind of selfishness where it's like, well, I made it, you know, and I did it by myself. So you're going to have to figure out how to do it by yourself versus I made it. This is what I did. This is how it happened for me. Let me help you by giving you these tools or introducing you to this person or, you know, navigating a mentorship environment to help you reach that next level. And that's been one of the things that we're, we've been you know privileged enough to do with our organization is to connect all 270 of our entrepreneurs directly with a mentor to kind of help them guide this process at the same time. Mm-hmm. You've had 270 entrepreneurs through your, yeah, your program now. Yeah. Do you have an yeah. example of a like a success story from an early cohort that you could Man. you could share? How do you, I know it must be tough to pick <laughs> just one, but absolutely, yeah. It's like saying, "Hey, you're my favorite kid." Um, <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll go back to our very first cohort. We had a guy who came to us. Um, his name is Means Cameron, and. In that process, he had already started a company, a clothing company, and he actually had a business degree and he wanted to learn more so the entrepreneurial side of it. Because, you know, when you go to school and you get a business degree, it's kind of like, you know, broader context. Mm -hmm. He wanted to learn kind of the more grassroots, you know, what is it like to be an actual entrepreneur in this journey? So he actually came through our program, Cohort One. And he has since gone on to create a coffee shop that's actually right next to his boutique. It's called Black Coffee. Um, and he gets to, you know, just have a community space where people to come can come together. Um, also, in that same cohort, we had a guy named Brian Jackson come through. He actually won our pitch night for the first cohort. And his idea was to do a brewery. And we were like, Man, that is going to be an expensive. <laughs> right, yeah, like, yeah, he, he had already been working for about two or three years and like doing home brewing, and he was winning like local competitions and stuff. So he was like really feeling himself, and he's like, "Man, like I want to make this a real brewery." And I was just like, "Okay, like let's see what we can do." You know, we're you know we're just starting now. You know, it's like this is like a heavy lift for your first tour. 
And so, you know, we started talking to him about, you know, what we are building and what he wants to build and how he wants to do it. And I really admire Brian because when he graduated from the program, he understood that there was still so much more to learn that was more of a hands-on thing. So he actually went to work at a local brewery so that he could get the hands-on experience of what it's like to do this in a larger you know, construct. Mm-hmm. Um, so he went to work at a company called Mad Tree Brewing. Um, and then after that, you know, he was working part-time at a place called Cavalier that does distribution. So he's trying to understand, well, okay, yeah, I know how the brewery makes the beer, but how did the beer get from the place to kills, you know, so he's like, I'm going to go work at the distributor to learn this process. And so uh, as of last year, you know, he started a crowdfunded program, which was, you know, with the loosening of the reins on the ability to do like equity investments and things of that nature, Mm -hmm. he was able to do a crowdfunded equity campaign where he raised $700,000 just doing that. Yeah, it it was crazy. (laughs) And, you know, and and then he had an additional investor that put in maybe another $250,000 on top of that. So now he's actually uh, in the process of doing the build out for his brewery. It's going to be in a neighborhood called Walnut Hills that we also operate in. And so he's going to be, uh, he has a new partner as well that used to be in a, at Procter & Gamble. And so they're working together and they're going to be the first minority owned brewery in the region. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's crazy, you know, to know that we had a hand in, you know, helping him to get to that point. But I think it's really important to also note that our first cohort was about five and a half years ago, and he had already been working on this for two or three years. So we're, we're down the line eight years and his dream is coming true. And I think that that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs take for granted is the time you know they get started they're like okay i got the determination and i have the abilities but then it's like how do and and maybe i have the finances but most of them don't but you know and it's like but how like investing in the time to know that i know for a fact he's going to be ready when this opens because he knows what it's like to run a full-sized brewery he knows what it's like to do distribution um and he makes great beer because he's won competition so I think taking the time is one of the things that I would encourage more entrepreneurs to do, because a lot of times they try to speed through the process. And when you do that, you're shorting yourself throughout that process. Yeah. You mentioned the challenge of uh, having Brian in the first cohort because yeah. you were still kind of getting your, your feet under you. Yeah. How did you get started doing this work? What, what was your background that, that yeah. led you to found Mortar? Man, I've been an entrepreneur like my whole life. I started at 12 as a photographer. You know, I uh, went to an art exhibit with my parents. I was really, I've always been really into art. So I used to draw and all kind of stuff. And so my parents used to take me to a lot of museums because that was what I was into. And so my parents took me to an exam at, I used to live in Indianapolis at the, it was at the Children's Museum, uh, which is the largest children's museum in the world. And they were actually doing a, a photography exhibit of all black photographers. And one of the photographers that was there was Gordon Parks. And Gordon Parks was the first black photographer at Life Magazine and Vogue Magazine. 
went on to become a film director. He did uh, movies like Shaft and The Learning Tree, and he's an author and a poet and all these crazy things. And so I met him, you know, as a kid, and I was like, I love these stories that are built into these photographs, and that's what I want to do. And so my parents went and uh, we went to this used camera store called Roberts, and they bought me a camera, and I just started just shooting away, and I, I haven't pretty much stopped since then. I still do photography even now. And I took like a decade off just because I just had a lot of things going on, including founding motor. But like last year, I started getting back into it. But so I've always been an entrepreneur. And even after becoming a photographer, I worked at a studio for a while, but I wanted to do my own thing. So I was doing like weddings and other, you know, shoots and stuff like that on the side. I went back to school to get my degree in graphic design, started a graphic design agency that also did photography. And uh, in that process, did a lot of brand consulting where I helped brands kind of figure out strategy and how to stand out, you know, in the crowd. And then so I worked with a ton of small businesses in that process. And then so when we thought about starting Mortar, it was like I get to do all of the things that I've ever wanted to do. I get to do them as one job. So I get to do photography. I'm the creative director. I get to do graphic design, web design. I'm working with all of our small businesses on the consulting side. So this is literally the first time in my life, you know, in starting Mortar, where I was able to do all of the things I was passionate about at one time. And I think that if you can build out something like that, that brings all of your dreams into one place, like, you know, that is definitely the epitome of, you know, creating your dream job. So yeah, that, that, that is definitely all helped me in this process. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, and you said you had a couple partners too, right? Derek. Yep. Derek and William. Yeah. yeah how, how do you know, how do you know those guys? So I actually met Derek in Indianapolis. We were both working with entrepreneurs in different ways. He had actually started another nonprofit in Indy at the time uh, where they did uh, pitch nights for entrepreneurs. And I was at the time, that's when I was doing uh, my brand strategy work. And so I was working with a lot of small businesses. And I, I partnered up with a friend of mine who had just opened a venue. And I was like, hey, we should do this, this small business boot camp. You know, that's just like a one day thing where people can come and hear from speakers and just do everything that they ever wanted to do and learn everything that they ever wanted to learn in one space. And I was like, yeah, we should probably incorporate a pitch night or something into that. And so uh, I reached out to Derek and his team and I was just like, hey, you know, you guys are doing pitch nights. Is it possible for us to incorporate that into the boot camp that we're doing? And so that was our first time working together. I'd already went to like one of his other events um, in the past, but that was our first time working together. So when I moved to Cincinnati about uh, eight years ago, he moved to Cincinnati as well, completely unrelated. And he didn't even know I had moved. But he moved about a year later to Cincinnati and William and Derek both went to college together. So William was like, hey, Cincinnati has a lot of energy happening right now. There's a lot on the horizon in Cincinnati. He's like, you need to get here because this is going to be one of the great cities in the Midwest. And so Derek took that leap of faith, you know, hinging on what, what William said. And then we all ended up here together with that common thread of entrepreneurship. And so that's why we were able to come together pretty easily to create more yeah, that's great. You're all kind of working on the same challenge yeah, independently. Yeah, um, 
it seems like most most accelerators are pulling from a, a national group of startups or in some cases even international you you've kind of taken the the exact opposite approach it seems like with like the hyper localization yeah. not even like the city in some ways like down to the specific neighborhood yeah. well, how, what, are, what are some of the the advantages of of doing it that way you know, when we started, we literally said this is going to be in one neighborhood. We were only focused on over the Rhine. And I think that that gave us an ability to, to understand the culture and the people from that particular neighborhood. And when you go from neighborhood to neighborhood, you understand that there are differences and the people are different and they have, have had different experiences, especially in the business context, you know, and it gives us the ability to take the time out to respect what has taken place before we arrive. I think that when you look at how gentrification takes place, it typically comes in with a disrespect of what has been there before. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're being super sensitive to what has been in a place before we arrive. And so we work directly with communities to say, you know, hey, this is what we're working on. Is this something that you're interested in? Is this something that would benefit the members of your community? And if they agree, then we partner on it. You know, it's not something we have never gone to a neighborhood where we haven't first had some some version of a connection to the people in the communities, uh, the community organizers that are already doing work in that place. And so, like you said, it gives us that hyper local feel. However, we've also developed something that is like a formula. And when I think about our programming and the, the infrastructure that we built, I like to think of it as a liquid where no matter what you pour it into, it's still the same formula, but it takes the shape of whatever you pour it into. And so that has given us the ability to take this formula from Cincinnati to other cities as well. So we are currently operating in Milwaukee. We're operating in Kansas City. We're working in Akron, Ohio, and we're also working in Covington, Kentucky. So we have started to really look at what the Midwest needs and start to kind of distribute this formula to other organizations. And when we go to cities, we're looking at organizations that are there who are already boots on the ground, who are already doing the work of you know, cultivating entrepreneurs. And then we're saying, hey, we have this formula. Would this be helpful to you? That's always the first question. This is what we do. Is this helpful to you? Is this something that you're missing? If there's already an organization that's working there, there's already a culturally competent curriculum, there's already infrastructure that is helping entrepreneurs move forward. We can be a support system, but we're not going to come to the city and try to take over what's already happening there uh, because there's way too many places in America that don't have this infrastructure for us to go to places that already do and start to create some unnecessary competition. And so I think that having that hyper-local feel early on helps us to realize how to connect with local entities as we think about the distribution of this product and these resources to other cities, because we are looking at it in the same way. Well, if somebody had came to us and, you know, or came to Cincinnati without doing a survey of the land or talking to the community and just like plopped something down, it would feel exactly like gentrification feels in all of these neighborhoods. And we don't want to be that. Got it. So you're bringing your, culturally progressive, intelligent curriculum and partnering with the local organizations that have their, their boots on the ground. Absolutely. So for example, in uh, Milwaukee, we are working with an organization called Rise MKE, 
and they are partnered with the Urban League. They're partnered with the African American Chamber, and then they are all, you know, synergized together to work together. Well, in uh, Kansas City, we work with an organization called Porterhouse KC, which works, you know, independently. And they just needed the curriculum. They had some of the other infrastructure in place. So they are able to operate and we just come in and, and provide support and guidance and we do consulting and then they use our curriculum and we did, we've done facilitated training with them. For Akron and for Covington, those models are going to be a little bit different because they will actually carry the mortar name. So these are organizations that have come together and said, you know what, we love the work that you're doing and we want to keep the brand, you know, and so they're able to license the brand for a period of time which allows us to go to the city and it helps us to kind of build our footprint across the nation as well. Because ultimately we want to build something that people can use anywhere in the nation. Um, and then ultimately, you know, at some point we'll grow even outside of the United States to, you know, introduce this, the way that we approach entrepreneurship in communities, we'll be able to introduce that to other, other countries as well. When you started Mortar, you were trying to bridge a, a resource gap for these right. communities. Um, besides the, the the funding and the uh, what what have you seen over the last six years? Has it gotten better? Are there more programs who are trying to do this work? Is there more of a focus among the you know investment community about getting capital into the hands of historically marginalized entrepreneurs? Or or what are you what are you seeing as a a trend? I'm seeing some effort, but there's more that needs to be done. When you think about what has recently taken place with COVID-19 and some of the programs that have been developed that were rumored to be designed to help small businesses, they, for one, did not benefit small businesses in the way that we would have liked to see. And for two, the challenges that businesses that are owned by people of color experience are magnified in these types of arrangements. So when you look at having existing banking relationships or the initial fund was released like seven days before the one that would be for people who were solo entrepreneurs. And when you think that the majority of small businesses, regardless of the color of the owner, the majority of them are single owner businesses that don't have employees. And then when you release it seven days later and basically all of the money was pretty much gone by the time they were even able to step into that place, then you think about what that means for communities of color who maybe don't have banks in their communities, you know, because traditional banking institutions often shy away from communities of color um, in the same way that they've done with redlining and all of these other policies in the past. So you know, the challenges of even having those banking relationships and being able to reach out to your specific banker. Like if you, you know, most most business owners that come from a uh, black community don't have a banker. They might have a teller at the bank that they speak to when they make deposits, but they don't have like a banker where they can reach out to this person because they, the volume of their accounts aren't significant enough to have a personal banker, you know, and sometimes those relationships are not embraced enough by the banking institution. So it just created a system that actually made it even harder for those small businesses as well. So 
it's I mean, there's there's so many additional challenges that we continue to face and, and obstacles that we will continue to be advocates for these businesses. I mean, it, it seems like every other day there's something new that gives us a reason to continue to fight for the communities that we operate in. And we're able to lead even in the communities that we're connected to across the nation and kind of give them guidance as to this is what our priority is concerning this issue. And then, you know, you can reach out to your community councils or your senators or your elected officials, and we can we can kind of magnify these issues as we see them in multiple communities across the nation. Interesting. So like a from a like a policy side as well, educational piece. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of our next forum for us is to really become more active in the political arena because there's legislation for a lot of things and we have to do more legislation that benefits small businesses. And so having those relationships with people who are in your your local government and as well as like your uh, state, you know, and and national, you know, I think it's really important to get things done that will benefit small businesses. Well, your your goals are ambitious between national expansion and international expansion. You're also getting into the policy arena. So you've really, you've set a high bar for yourselves over there. That is true. That is true. There is never a a lax day over here. So (laughs) when I, uh, when I, scheduled a, a meeting with you you had a question in there like what books what music what art yeah. is inspiring you right now right right now it's this pandemic what are you leaning on for inspiration oh man uh, i haven't really had a lot of time to sit down and read anything right now um but on my audible subscription which i absolutely love because it gives me time to listen as i'm doing other things and I think the one that I'm on right now is Simon Sinek's Leaders Eat Last. I recently made the shift from, we, we had a co-executive director leadership style um, where Derek and I were actually managing partners of the organization. And that was until January 1 of this year where I became sole executive director and he's leading all of our development work. And so that was one of the things that I was just like, okay, I need to read more about what I want my leadership style to be and more about, you know, being an effective leader. And so that particular book has been great. I'm almost done with it. Uh, but yeah, it's called Leaders Eat Last. And it talks about, you know, really just taking care of your people within your organizations where and it gives a lot of really helpful stories of different corporations who have prioritized people over bottom lines and how it has actually led to them benefiting, you know, on their bottom line. And I think that for me, it's been great because uh, I think of the approach that I have is like the people who work for us, they are individuals first and they are employees second. And so when I approach people, my first question is always, you know, how are you doing? Not what are you doing, not what are you working on, but how are you doing? Because I know that whatever is happening in your life is going to affect what happens in your work life. 
you know, so if we're thinking about the different methods in which people connect with others, they're, and I don't, I know a lot of people don't like to use like work-life balance, but I mean, I think that if there's an imbalance, you know, you will fall. And I think that you do have to have a level of balance where it can't be all work. It can't be all, you know, your regular stuff. Like, I think there has to be, and it doesn't have to, balance doesn't mean that they're equal. It just means that it is a state of not falling off. Um, and I think that we have to be able to say, I know that something is happening with you. And so let's extend the deadline on this project that you're working on because it's going to be really difficult for you to navigate this when I know for a fact that your anxiety is on 10 this week because everything is happening around us. And I think that you have to have that emotional intelligence as a leader to be able to say that, you know, I'm prioritizing the people over the employee in this process. And that book has really reinforced that for me. So I would, I would definitely say that. Especially nowadays. I feel like the companies that come out of this crisis in the best shape are going to be the ones that had done that, had put their employees first, who had that loyalty to the organizations. Um, But is there anything that that I haven't asked you that you'd like to, to talk about before I let you go? Um, I'll just, not anything in particular. I think one of the things that I would just encourage people to do is to, um, especially during this time, figure out how you can support the organizations that matter to you, whether they are local or national organizations, figure out what they need and try to fill that need. So whether it is making direct donations to those organizations or figuring out if there's a way to do virtual volunteerism, this is a perfect time where most of us have a little bit of extra time. So even if it's just that we're just shaving the time off of our commute, you know, like, so if that means that there's 30 extra minutes that I have in a day where I'm not commuting, is there a way that I can help my local nonprofit during that 30 minutes a day? Um, You know, whether it's by going and sharing their social media content with my audience, or if it's that I have a certain skill that I want to offer to them, you know, or making calls or emails or whatever. Um, So I just would encourage people to do that. If they want to find out more about Mortar, they can find us everywhere. And it is We Are Mortar, and that's W-E-A-R-E-M-O-R-T-A-R. That is our website, wearemortar.com, on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's at We Are Mortar, um, and even on Cash App. It's a dollar sign. We are mortal. If you can make donations that way, we try to make it easy. You can also make a donation directly through our website, but you know, we try to keep everything easy and consistent. I appreciate that. And you have a podcast of your own. Yeah, yeah. So my wife and I have a podcast called Permanent Plus One. So when you think about when you, you know, are going to an event and you get a plus one, you know, like we are each other's permanent plus ones, you know, like wherever we go, we're going together. Uh, and that's in life or events. Um, and so what we do is we talk about life through a marriage lens and as parents and people who are married, it is not a podcast that is specifically for people who are married. We have lots of single people, people who don't even intend on getting married ever in their lives who listen to it for, you know, just the cultural commentary. And we just talk about what's going on in the world and around us and, you know, dealing with parents and, as we get older and our parents are getting older and navigating this relationship of switching from being the child to feeling like we're the parent of the parents 
And, you know, it just really talks about that. So you can find uh, Permanent Plus One everywhere. Uh, just spell out Permanent Plus One correctly. It's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on Facebook and Instagram. Cool. Well, Alan, thank you so much for, for taking the time to sit down with me. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. I enjoyed talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. And, you know, stay safe, stay at home, and uh, keep going with your podcast. I appreciate this opportunity. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Alan. If you're interested in learning more about the work that they're doing at Mortar, visit their website at wearemortar.com. Also, alongside this episode, we'll publish a, a blog on our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net, where we'll include resources for listeners who want to learn more about the topics discussed. And if you're curious about exploring these themes further, check out our event, Spectrum, from June 9th to 11th, where we'll discuss access to capital for historically marginalized entrepreneurs, building truly inclusive and equitable economies, and other important conversations. As always, we, we really appreciate if you share the, the podcast with a friend, rate it five stars on, on Apple Podcasts. And if you're interested in getting in touch with me, you can reach me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com or on social media with the handle at SoCap Markets. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.